Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. Please also consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to our next topic. <laughs> what is that? Well, it's, I believe it or not, I'm predominantly British and Irish, uh, but that little Italian side uh, seemed to become really dominant. Uh, my father was Italian, so. Nice. Uh, where, where, are you, where are you at? Where are you located? I'm right I'm, can be, I'm talking to you guys from the 47th floor in uh, Times Square, New York City, where they dropped the ball. Oh, wow. For New oh, wow. Year's is about uh, a good, a good solid less than a hundred yards from where I'm talking to you on a diagonal. I know where I'm going. December 31st, we're coming to hang out with you on New Year's Eve, man. Yeah. Oh man, you don't, you don't want to do that. I mean, the good news is if I had you with me, we could clear through a, a crowd, John. Maybe so. <laughs> well, I'm gonna apologize. I'm gonna apologize because I just got done training really hard. And I'm coughing, man. I was doing hard intervals, and I'm like dying right now but anyway uh zach why don't you uh get us going here i'm gonna cough off mike <laughs> oh yeah <please> no. <laughs> <laughs> awesome yeah no thanks for coming on the on the show uh, dr pastori um we're we're excited to uh, you know add another interview to to an, an yet another phd we're, we've been really fortunate to have a lot of guests with some some good educational background, uh, and and it looks like you you are uh, also <laughs> falling well in that category. Um, and I was just looking at some of your stuff before too, and uh, it looks like you've had some background working with some professional athletes as well as um, uh, a pretty good understanding kind of the paleo diet and how that fits into both uh, health and performance. Um, so yeah, if you if you want to share with Art and some of the, some stuff about yourself, uh, we can start diving into some topics if you want. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm super uh, easy and flexible, whichever way you wanted to uh, spin it. I was on a podcast and I was asked to please give them a mental challenge. And I said, yeah, sure. Go out and get a PhD. So, <laughs> so, I, so I, am, I am obsessed uh, with academics. Uh, I did a PhD in biomedical informatics, nanomedicine, clinical informatics at Rutgers. Um, I, before that, because I've had such an eclectic love of various topics. Before that, I did my graduate education, my master's degree at Eastern Michigan University, studying with some brilliant minds. I was very lucky to have uh, Dr. John Carbone, who did his PhD in nutritional biochemistry at UConn as my professor and on my thesis track as one of the chair um, for his work in protein metabolism. John is a brilliant man. And going to to two universities that were um, fundamentally strong in sports, um, Eastern Michigan, really big baseball school, really big in football, uh, big and I would say the biggest is track and field. So if you guys want to talk about anything to sports, how I got interested in nutrition, that's a, a real interesting story. Um, I have celiac disease. Um, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon, but surprise, I had a, a food-based illness that made me obsessed about learning everything I could about food. So those are, I mean, whatever, wherever you guys want to go topic-wise is, is stuff that I could, I could, uh, I could spin. Let me let me jump back in because I just got done over my coughing fit. Hey, uh, we just had uh, you know a while ago. Uh, speaking of protein metabolism, a little while ago we had Professor Stuart Phillips on, who I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he's uh, pretty big in the world of protein metabolism as, as well. And I mean, it seems like there's really no question about it as far as at least for athletic performance, higher protein is 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 pretty much 
you know, I don't think there's too much controversy about that. The controversy comes in, I think, a little bit with the common guy that's just hanging out and wanting to be healthy. Do you have any input on are we under-recommending protein as far as what the RDA says, or, or do you think they're they're on the money with that, or do you think it's it's highly individual? I think, I, of course, I think it's highly individual, but I think they're way off the mark. Um, they're, they're way off the mark, the RDA recommendations. I think we're undernourished from a protein perspective. We know that from tracking sarcopenia for years. Um, John Carbone, when he was teaching classic nutrition classes in a school that ended up getting you the registered dietitian credential, you can imagine the tightrope he had to walk, he would cross out all the protein recommendations and show everything he did because he did a lot of clinical research with the United States military. He continues to this day. Um, I'm honored that I got to publish with him in the Journal of Nutrition Research where I just wanted to look at some controversial topics. Um, and, and one of the things I do is I, I, sometimes I want a Trojan horse mentality. If, if I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings and mistruths around cholesterol, um, that's a whole separate debate and argument. But if I want to get something through peer review, I'm going to use the weaponry that um, an opposing side dietetically is going to use or employ. For example, in the published study I did back in June of 2015, when it concluded and it was published, uh, it, it was regarding the American Heart Association's diet and dietary recommendations, which were extremely strict from a fat perspective. And I think Fat can be incredibly healthy for you, uh, extremely restrictive from a protein perspective, and it was a dominant carbohydrate, low-fat diet. And I had participants go through that period for four months and then have a washout and then actually follow um, some some loose, I'm doing air quotes, some looser recommendations um, of, of a paleolithic type lifestyle, which I, I would prefer to, if I may call it a hunter-gatherer type lifestyle. I, I looked at, just like Dr. Cordain, I'm a huge fan of, of Lauren Cordain, his first paper, Humanity's uh, Double-Edged Sword regarding cereal grains, which came out in 1999, uh, really influenced me. Having a grain-based disease really influenced me. The fact that my disease, as Thompson has shown in multiple published studies, was so outside of just the, the classic gluten-containing grains versus gluten-free containing grains, where time after time after time again, she was actually identifying my disease-causing agents in quinoa, in various seeds, in nuts, and the, the broad spectrum of cross-contamination in the market. Uh, so so I, I, I actually did this study and got the IRB through uh, the board at Michigan and had huge responses, even from directors of the clinical nutrition program at, at Michigan Ann Arbor, uh, Michigan Tech, like just so many schools where, where researchers were interested in what I was trying to, what I was trying to do. And the, the conclusion of that study, and I invite everyone to read it, was that when patients were on a hunter-gatherer diet, which had so much more protein compared to the American Heart Association diet, so much more fat, and it was still, keep in mind, loose recommendations. I mean, I was allowing like a half a cup of white potato in a day and an ounce of dried fruit in a day. And I even said, because you imagine trying to get participants to sign up for this stuff, yeah, we're going to cut your wine off at four ounces. Even with all of those Achilles heels, we absolutely clobbered the results that you would find by the American Heart Association. Uh, and, and I did that because I feel that there's a lot of lies that have been portrayed upon uh, the public with regard to nutrition. I think that they are um, well-meaning. I think that there's brainwashing that starts all the way from undergraduate degrees going forward. And, uh, and, I, and I think that that's a problem. And the only way I knew to go after it was to publish and, to, and to, to just to get a paper out there, a lot of what my colleague has done. You know, I didn't have the, the um, time to do that because I was practicing for a very long period of time in my career. Um, Dr. Cordain, on the other hand, was just 
publishing like nobody's business and was churning out great papers. And I would not only read everything he published, but I would read every reference that he used to identify my sources and material where it came to more of a hunter-gatherer uh, lifestyle. Dr. Pastor, do you f find, are there some additional hurdles in the academic world if you want to go upstream, if you want to swim against the tide, do you find that it's harder to get those publications out there or is it, is it, is it pretty easy? Uh, what I think you're going to love about me, Dr. Baker, is I'm an incredibly transparent guy. My paper was rejected by the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, and I'm a member of the American <laughs> Society for <laughs> Nutrition. So that I, I'm a member of the group that makes the journal, and it was just shot down in record-breaking time. Basically, in, in, without pulling punches, it was just too controversial of a topic. To answer your question, uh, without a doubt... I will go on the record as saying I don't even think you could pursue a registered dietitian credential if you want to follow something outside the realm of, of the my plate, which circumvented the, the uh, food pyramid that we're all quite aware of. Uh, I pursued a CNS, if you guys are familiar with the Certified Nutrition Specialist Appellation. I think it's one of the best appellations out there. It's accredited. It's academic. It offers states, state licensure. Um, and you have to have a master's degree, even be able to qualify for it. And you have to put in your tenure with regard to uh, working under a medical doctor that also has the same credential um, for for thousands of hours. So I, I felt very rewarded taking that path. But it, it was, without a doubt, um, a major uphill battle for the type of uh, information that I wanted to, to not only learn, but to then end up teaching and practicing. But I've never looked back, Dr. Baker. It, that knowledge and what I went out and went after, in addition to getting those credits and, and doing it like much like you, right? Graduating, everything I did, I did with honors. Everything I did, I did. Uh, I finished a PhD with a perfect 4.0 at a 4.0. I'm that type of guy. I was, I, you got to pardon me. I had three Marines raise me. Okay, so <laughs> my, my three uncles, rest their soul, uh, are, are such a huge light in my life. Uh, I, I'm the furthest thing from a lazy person you'll meet. And uh, I just, but, but by the same token, I'm also not afraid. So I was not afraid to, to buck the trend when I knew the difference I saw in my own health. Um, if I could just rewind for a moment, gentlemen, my main symptoms were cardiovascular illness and a seizure disorder. So I basically ended up on 13 different medications to treat two different types of arrhythmias. Can you imagine being 19 years old and your late stage atrial fibrillation, ventricular tachycardia, my resting heart rate was hovering around 220. Um, it was just a horrible way to live. And then that slowly morph morphed into a seizure disorder of unknown origin where I, w I thought I broke my neck once with such a severe seizure and falling and, and hurting myself. And then over time, that progressed into gastrointestinal symptoms. And it, if it wasn't for my tenacity and love of science and medicine, I don't believe I ever would have got diagnosed. And I ended up forcing my own diagnosis and I'm biopsy positive celiac disease status post 29 years. And it was that fateful moment that made me think, you know, here's the bread of life, no pun intended, that was actually trying to take my life away. Um, and, and it was also much harder than you could imagine at the time. I'm 49 years old. So going way back to when I was 20 and being diagnosed, my, there was no internet. My, my options for food were just impossible. Uh, and it was a massive learning curve. And there was one moment that was so gold standard where I'm at this bifurcation point in my life. And I said, wow, I'm really going to follow this path of nutrition. It was when my, my cardiologist at the time 
when he saw, my goodness, yeah, your blood test is terrible. We really got to get you a biopsy. I get biopsy proven celiac. He went to his medical textbook and actually tore out the page with information on celiac disease and handed it to me. And I was agape, my jaw was agape, and, and I didn't even understand how to process this information. It wasn't that he was giving me this information of how I was gonna have to eat for the rest of my life because there's no known cure. It was the fact that who was the patient after me with this disease, what information was that patient gonna get since he tore it out of his medical book? Again, this precedes the internet. This wasn't, I'll just, I got the PDF version. No. So it was, I had to fight to be taken seriously through the diagnosis and identification of my disease. I'm happy to report, gentlemen, that I'm in, knock on wood, fantastic health, uh, zero cardiovascular problems. I was thought I had a twin because my heart was so great and, and I was pulling up numbers on a stress test of like an 18-year-old runner. Uh, so that was all fine and, and, and wonderful. But I had to fight to get the information to be well and then challenge the system to learn more. I just wasn't going to be satisfied with the standard status quo of the nutritional education that we're given. It's not all wrong. I've had phenomenal professors, brilliant education on every single nutrient we need, every down to the most infinitesimal amino acid pathway from a biochemistry perspective. I don't in the slightest bit regret my education. I just don't understand why it had to be a big battle to, to learn outside what is the quote-unquote norm. Dr. Pastore, do you think that's because, like, um, they have a system in place and they're fearful of um, they're, they're fearful of making a mistake by changing it and in turn being blind to the kind of you know the I guess poor health that we see nowadays um, or do you think that it's just like not wanting to change or do you have any thoughts on that yeah that's a, that's a great question um, being inside uh, academia, academics, and then practicing. Um, they're two different animals. And I think there is, this is going to shock you guys. I think academically, there's a denial of how much nutrition can do. Now that's vexing. And I see Dr. Baker shaking his head because I know his education, by the way, Texas Tech, man, rah, 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 love the university, brilliant education. They do phenomenal work in nutrition. They put creatine on the map. Uh, but but what's so remarkable is this, if you study nutritional biochemistry, you understand there's a nutritional component to every single physiological reaction. For me, being able to move my hands while I'm talking to you requires rapid production of adenosine triphosphate, acetylcholine, neurological transmission, and saltatory conductions that are happening in perfect symphony. That all has nutritional precursors. So I just can't, that, that smallest act. So from a disease state, to how the body heals itself from an injury, to everything we do has a nutritional precursor. To then deny that that can play a major role in major role in X, Y, and Z, I've, I've never found it to make sense. And I've always became friends with extremely well-educated outliers. Uh, and that's, you know, like Jeff Volick and, and his brilliant mind and the fact that he's a registered dietitian and does an enormous amount of lecturing and talks on the ketogenic diet. And in my own research, not only publishing, but also looking at the different nuances of nutrition and how I really firmly in my core of my soul believe we are all biochemically unique. And we can always learn something new that happens on a daily basis. I, I've stuck to two things. The first one I said, I believe we're all biochemically unique. And then the second thing I believe, and I know this is a little bit dramatic in the statement, but I could explain it if it comes across 
too dramatic, is that I firmly believe deep in my heart that one person's food can really be another person's poison. Uh, by poison, I mean something that could actually harm them. And it could be something you wouldn't expect. I mean, I'm sure we're all familiar with that alpha-gal meat allergy that transpired and was identified in 2009 from that Lone Star tick infection that introduced Lyme disease. We had patients four, six, seven, I think up to 12 hours later, Dr. Baker, that were developing anaphylaxis from consuming red meat, status post-Lyme disease. Now, for the record, I'm probably the biggest fan of red meat you'll meet on the planet. I remember when I was in working in internal medicine, I wrote a paper that was just called Red Meat is Safe because I was recommending lots of grass-fed red meat that had nothing, to, and I mean 100% grass-fed, uh, finished, fed, everything, start to finish. But it had nothing to do with the way I was educated. So I have this beautiful credential on the wall, and I got this certification that says I've, I'm fancy pants with regard to nutrition, but I'm not putting limitations on. I even remember a patient with heart disease saying to me, uh, marathon runner, uh, status post, second myocardial infarction. I said, well, actually, so obviously something's going around wrong here. You're, you you consume 7% of your diet of saturated fat. Come over to my dark side. I recovered from heart disease. And I, I think I eat at the, at the time I was like in my 30s. I think I was crushing around 27 servings minimum of red meat a week. Uh, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner. It, it's, it's a phenomenal health food. So I think there's a misunderstanding of nutrition's relationship to disease and how powerful that truly is. I think there's a misunderstanding of breaking away from paradigms. And it might even it might even dovetail with a lot of what Miriam Nestle published in her, her latest book um, that I've yet to read, but I'm anxious to get a hold of it. I think she's a wonderful researcher out of NYU, my home state of New York, um, on, on how there's so much influence with regard to publishing in nutrition. Uh, my paper was, was, I'd like to think, well-written, uh, sound science, went through a university system. I did that on purpose. Had it read by um, other experts just to give uh, an advice opinion. And the advice I was given with, oh, man, you're digging a hole in the wrong yard, buddy. And I was like, you know, bring it on. So, yeah, it's I hope that I hope that made sense and answered that question that there's just, it's really just a misunderstanding. Yeah. You know, I think, um, you know, we've had a, the last few guests we've had on have been um, big proponents of lifestyle <laughs> medicine. And uh, um, it's interesting because I think like as like technology has grown it's it's almost like an economy of scale type of thing where the default is to put you on a prescription right away because that's the quick simple fast cost efficient thing to do um but like now i think we maybe are starting to see some of the backlash to that and we're seeing more medical professionals like yourself like dr unwin who we had on and then even dr joel khan who has a very different nutritional philosophy than myself or dr baker you know all yeah. three of us though saw completely eye to eye as to what is the first step or should be the first step when a patient who is not doing well comes in and it's that last step is kind of like well mm -hmm. we should use these these medications for you that's almost like the um uh, the last resort more or less so it's it's interesting i think like that we're starting to see more people like yourself kind of pop up and um i'm curious if you think that's just due to like public demand asking for it, or if you think that's just because of uh um you know modern day the other the other side of the technology window i guess is it's you're you can be a lot more accessible you can get your stuff out there you can be seen um so people can kind of find you they don't have to go to one doctor and take their word for it they can go to the doctor the doctor tells them something they can also search 
endless amount of information online and find out what a bunch of other doctors are saying as well. Absolutely. And I think that the modern uh, era really has changed the landscape since when I was coming up and I was cutting my teeth, so to speak. For me, it took a personal experience. Uh, I, you know, I pardon that I'm redundant, but I really had aspirations to be a brain surgeon and it was a food based illness that was making me so sick. And then I started rewinding and looking through my family genetically. My father died of prostate cancer at 51. That is extremely abnormal. But when I was looking into the research of the genetics of my disease and various immunological markers that follow the same pathway of prostate cancer to my disease, it started opening my eyes up to my entire genome. So I think it was personal experience for me that pushed me out that I have to study. I have to learn and know the academic truth and get those credentials, but then never, never sway from or move from what I think is right based on the clinical literature. Then there's other people that are influenced by those. I was incredibly influenced by Dr. Lauren Cordain. I remember being on the phone with him in 2004. I personally invited him to his award-winning lecture when he went to the American College for Advancement in Medicine and gave this phenomenal lecture on 21st century diseases and the whole moving away from uh, our genetic uh, requirements for nutrition. Um, so, I, and then... Sadly, there's some people I think that want to be famous. I mean, if I if if I also may be so bold being a New Yorker, how could you expect anything less? You know, you have someone like Dr. Baker, who's so well credentialed and so well educated. He is someone you're going to want to listen to. Then you have other people that may not have those credentials, but it's just easier now to get out there and create a storm and be someone. So I, I, pardon me, gentlemen, but I do fear that side of what's happening right now. I think there's some scary things going out there because you may not be fully armed, right? There's like some people out there, blogs that say you should be getting this insane amount of fish oil per day and someone might follow that, but they may not understand that in their body, no one measured to see their level of, you know, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is... Uh, damage DNA or what is their free radical total themselves? Could they damage that omega-3 fatty acid more easily than, than, their, than their peer turning such a large dose into something more harmful in their bodies? So I think there's, there's a, de a demand and a need for nutritional specificity from well-credentialed professionals, and it is easier to get both in today's day and age back from, from when I was working. Dr. Pastore, let me just interject a couple points in here because, um, yeah, I mean, the nice thing about, and we're seeing this sort of democratization of medicine, I think there, there's, there's this just wonderful amount of data out there, and there's people coming together, and I think there's a lot of good that comes from that, and yes, you're right, there are people out there that are way off the mark, and, you know, ultimately, the results are going to, the cream is going to rise to the top, and people are going to, are going to adopt what, what's working, and there's going to be some there's going to be some errors. There's going to be some people going on the wrong path for a while, but that, that's, I think that'll be self-correcting. I want to go back to your, your particular issue with celiac disease. And, and I think, and I want to just kind of broaden that topic a little bit because we have, it seems like an ever growing epidemic of gastrointestinal issues, whether it's irritable bowel disease, you know, also colitis, Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome, which it, it's just growing. I mean, it's growing and growing and growing. Every year we see more and more people that are diagnosed, and there's probably quite a few people that are subclinical. I, I, you know, I probably was, you know, looking back historically, and I think a lot of people are. Do you feel that that is a disease that a person experiences, or do you think it is just an adaptation to 
a misinformed diet. What I'm saying is, are we trying to eat the wrong foods? And that is a normal physiologic reaction to this in people that you know, are just set up for it, or is that an actual disease? I know that's kind of semantics here, but I think there is some uh, merit in, in kind of exploring that. Absolutely, and I do, and I do think I think it can be. It's, it's a very deep talk, very deep topic, uh, Dr. Baker, because one could argue, like if I'm talking to Dr. Lauren Cordain, if I could put myself in his shoes, I, I know in my heart he would say, "Well, Robert, you have celiac disease, but you really shouldn't have been consuming that food anyway." Uh, so, so there you have it. Um, I, I I think it's important to, to identify that disease because it needs to be taken incredibly seriously as such. I've met a lot of paleo people that have followed or hunter-gatherer people or whatever nomenclature we want to attach to it, Dr. Baker, who have followed it a specific percentage of the time. They may allow themselves cheat days, so to speak. And in someone like me, that can kill me. So I think it's so critical for that identification to be real and actually truly take place. And I think that's crucial. Regarding irritable bowel syndrome and other different types of gastrointestinal diseases that have a basis in, in food allergy, one of the ones I'm most um, interested in is eosinophilic enteritis, horrible condition. There could be a, almost a cyclical vomiting type syndrome associated with it. I've seen multiple patients with the condition. It's also akin to gastroparesis, where there's just some really interesting neurological deficit in stimulating the pyloric sphincter to empty the contents of the stomach to get them through to the first part of the small intestine known as the du duodenum, where they go through the sodium bicarbonate wash. And then we have the unfolding of proteins and the completion of digestion. Um, in that type of scenario, nine times out of 10, it's typically food-based. And I've seen that verified by very well-respected journals, such as Journal and their sub-journal, the uh, uh, Journal of uh, Gastroenterology and Hepatology. They published a study back in February of 2004, which talked about non-IgE-mediated food-based reactions was a running uh, direction that should be researched in um, EE, eosinophilic enteritis. But those were typically the foods that we would say we should not, if you go by the Cordain model, we really didn't evolve to eat. Typically, I would find them to be dairy products. Typically, I would find them to be um, grain-based products. But I also would see nuts, and I also would see um, certain starches, and I also would see eggs, things that we normally would have in our diet. Uh, so it, to, for me, it's, a, it's, it's challenging to fully answer, but I think predominantly, uh, it, it really is going against the grain, no pun intended, or I guess pun intended, uh, of of eating against our our genome as we evolved, and I think that even that is broad. You know, I mean, you look at if you really look at all of what Lauren Cordain uh, researched in those two hundred eighteen hunter gatherer societies, you could see there's a big wide spectrum in how much fructose was consumed, and and that that's something really big. There's so many people that don't tolerate that. Um, and they, they end up resulting in having elevated liver enzymes. They end up having elevated triglycerides versus someone that may be consuming the same amount of product. Um, I had an interview uh, recently with a dear friend of mine who I can say it because he made it public and I never would divulge, but he made it public in multiple media outlets um, from video to, to press to uh, a podcast. But Raul Abanez, a former great Major League Baseball player, all-star, he noticed a dramatic change in how he needed to eat when I identified what was giving him great harm. At 33 years of age, he couldn't run 40 yards without agony. His, he was crippled after winning the World Series. Within a week of seeing me and me identifying how he was reacting immunologically to which foods, he could run 100 yards. And then, of course, the, the, the rest is, is history, where he'll hold records that are probably last for the rest of my life. I hope where he uh, broke records at 42 years of age, hitting uh, two walk-off home runs in the, in, in, for the New York Yankees. 
um, the oldest player ever, by the way. So for, for him, uh, having that unbelievable physicality and he looked like he's chiseled by Michelangelo, now that he's retired, he's more extremely low-carb, ketogenic, intermittent fasting, all those various things. Try to have that guy play without any starch, and he thought he was dying. So it's it's, it's really fascinating that it fit people's what they're what's going on in their life at that time there's a mantra in uh my phd the first part biomedical informatics which is the right drug for the right person at the right time and i i definitely believe we can move that over towards food as well now for a word from our sponsors hey folks thank you for tuning in to the human performance outliers podcast uh, we are very excited to have butcher box sponsoring the show sean why don't you tell us about some of your experiences yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the, on the, uh, in the sous vide and then uh, reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store, this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome, thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show. They see carbohydrates as kind of the all the be-all, end-all in terms of the fuel that they should be consuming, um, whereas I've kind of more or less flipped that on its head. I don't, I don't really eliminate carbohydrates altogether, but um, fat is my primary macronutrient pretty much year-round and at certain times like recovery and phases of the year where I'm not training as hard, you know, I'm, I can almost eliminate it and for, for days at a time. Um, do you, what do you see with some of the professional athletes that you're working with? Do you think that some of the, some of the stuff that is supposedly working based on, on the, the current science, is that, is that kind of a, a bit of what I would maybe think is burning the candle on both ends a little bit where like, um, no one's going to argue with you that, carbohydrate is going to be a faster fuel source but uh i think in some in in a a lot of situations we maybe have uh exceeded kind of that uh that threshold in terms of what is ideal for health and we we look at professional athletes who are oftentimes in their 20s and 30s who could probably get away with a lot more in terms of uh not making the best nutrition choices for their health um, and have that not show up in their performance until after they retire or at the end of their career, or maybe that's why they retire. Um, would you, Very true. if you want to touch on any of that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, and, and you, you nailed it. So what? And and I should state for the record that my practice was a tainted pool uh, because people would come to me because they weren't feeling great, uh-huh. right? But then I started hearing the locker room talk. Younger guys, like when I was working with Raul, he was an older athlete, and you know, from thirty-seven on he was exclusively working with me all the way until he re- retired. And we, I would have young guys come in who just were drafted, want to get that big contract saying, how can I not hurt 
the way Raul does not hurt. How can I, they're, they're crushing Mobic and various types of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And you know what's so funny? There's kind of like a black magic involved in sports. These people are just supremely talented. They have hit better vision than their non-professional athlete peers. That's been studied. There's even a documentary on that. Um, there's some athletes, I, I worked with a baseball player, had, uh, he batted over 600 in the postseason. He's really known as the postseason guy. And he could see the seams on the ball before they left the pitcher's hand. And that just blows my mind. So there was an ability to just have this incredible genetics and get away with it. But then it would mean get away with a poor diet mm -hmm. or not, not ideal dietary choices. And then they would finally drink the Kool-Aid, if I may take a horrible food, so to speak. <laughs> And, and come around to, I've really got to start looking into it. So my work uh, started infecting uh, various locker rooms by me helping get, you know, it's money talked. I would take a guy who's being paid, which is funny for me, because it sounds like a lot of money, like $2 million, his career may be over. And then I would get him to sign in the multiple hundreds of millions of dollars. And just by rebuilding his body and, and having him do everything right for him, train right, recover right, eat right, sleep right, hydrate right. For him, that spoke volumes. And when I would be invited into some ball ball clubs, uh, there was one that I'll, I'll never forget. There was actually a um, a fast food cook was the chef for the team. And I'm thinking, I don't even think we have this type of nutri horrible nutrition for horse racing. What the heck is going on here? These athletes are getting paid an enormous amount of money, and you got a guy that's for all intents and purposes, a fast fry, a fast food chef making deep fried French fries with the worst oil and the, you know, creating all these toxic compounds for the athletes. So there, there's kind of like they were getting brainwashed from within the teams and the locker rooms themselves. And it always required someone in the team to preach and get on the soapbox and then work with a doctor to, to have more happen. And a colleague of mine is actually doing the most in that world right now. Uh, his name is Dr. Keith Pine and he's the current medical chair for the Washington Nationals. And he's done an enormous amount for changing nutrition for the teams that he, that he works for. And that makes it almost impossible for the athlete to not see the difference because they're spending their life at the ballpark. They're eating a healthier way, maybe not specifically for them just yet, they didn't identify a lot of different biological markers that I think are essential for someone who's putting their body on the line making movements with their physical body that are, let's admit it, not normal, right? A pitcher throwing 80 plus pitches, 90 plus pitches with one arm in the 80, depending on the pitch to close to 100 miles an hour is not normal and you're going to blow out that shoulder over time. And we could use the same example for every single sport. A catcher's weird position, not good for physicality. A hockey player, same thing. The way a goalie has to move his hips, not normal. There's going to be an injury just by default. So optimizing an individual's nutritional state in that Achilles heel is crucial. So there now is more awareness. But the athletes are learning they can't run from it um, for, for long. I was seeing guys before they even hit 30 just starting to break down. And I, I actually started wondering could it just be that food is just getting worse? Is the processing so much worse now? Are there just more artificial garbage that's being put into the food supply now that's having these guys break down even a quicker period of time? That I can't answer. Maybe it was just more awareness and there was a psychosomatic effect, but nothing could lie like standard 
data. So what I would see is a super supreme physically fit marathon runner that would come to me and I would be the first one on the planet to tell them, um, you're borderline type two diabetic. And they'd look at me like, what? Like I told them they won the lottery in a bad way. Um, what, when did your doctor last run a hemoglobin A1C? When were they last looking at a fasting glucose? When did they look at? And I would put athletes through like a fasting glucose over a period of time when I worked in internal medicine. And uh, guess what? The doctor would make a presumption that, well, look at this. Is it? Look at his exercise habits and how physically fit this person is. Body fat has to be what? 8% max? Oh my goodness. We're skipping that test. Turn to the left and cough. I'll see you in 12 months. And, and that's a that's a dramatic problem. You know, as I said at the beginning of this uh, this podcast, I've, I've had marathon runners that were, had two heart attacks and were physically fit. I've had top baseball players that were pre-diabetic. Uh, I've had uh, ultra marathoners that were falsely uh, potentially on the risk path of thinking they had multiple sclerosis by major medical institutions. And it really was a deficiency of key nutrients because they were not consuming uh, and replacing what their body was utilizing and burning off. I've met young athletes that were not even trying to um, have the female athlete triad, but actually ended up having the clinical definition of it without being bulimic just by following the wrong path for them, having a food allergy that may trigger the anemia that's associated with that disease, um, a dairy allergy in one of my, my young runners and track stars ended up causing her inability to absorb calcium, vitamin D and iron. Well, she had osteopenia before she finished undergrad. So it's, re it's remarkable um, what, what food can do if you're doing it the wrong way. Yeah, I wanna just interject because there, and I've said this for quite a while, I think that uh, poor nutrition equals poor tissue quality equals higher injury rates. And I think we see that we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing it in the pediatric population. The, the, it's almost an explosion of, you know, you can look at uh, pediatric ACL injuries and we see it's just ex expanding. And we think, well, the kids are more active than they used to be. Well, that's honestly, that's not the case. We have kids that are less active. And so I do think it is the just the absolute you know, explosion of processed foods, vegetable oils, high fructose corn syrup, you know, all this stuff that we are constantly exposed to that, that is, is leading to some of that. And I think it's not just a, uh, you know, a, a speculation. I think there's something there. And I think you can look at, you know, you can literally look at a person and kind of get an estimate of what their tissue quality is going to be like and predict, you know, an injury response on that. And so I think it's, uh, your point being that, you know, a lot of a lot of young athletes, you know, they, they're on the McDonald's diet, you know, even, you know, guys in the NFL, they're 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 chugging down Cokes and, and eating French fries cooked and whatever. And they're they're still phenomenal athletes and they're and they, they look like they're chiseled out of stone. But then you look at them 10 years down the road and the story tends to change. And I do think it's I, I do think there is that genetic component that, you know, people conflate youth uh, and genetics with health. And I think that's a that's a mistake. Absolutely. I believe it's a critical mistake. And, and one thing we should touch upon is, is our various polymorphisms nutritionally. And you can only go so far and run so far having those. We know that over 40% of the, the female population that uh, is, is in the, 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 the childbearing age um, may have an inability to utilize standard folate uh, and convert that into its biological form. We know that there's similar uh, data coming out of Germany on beta carotene being, in, being uh, converted into um, a retinol in the, in the body. 
Uh, so when you add all of that together, let's imagine the perfect storm of the McDonald's eating phenomenal genetic you know, linebacker on a professional football team. And then they have one of the aforementioned polymorphisms, and I can go on in that area. You will see mimicking of what Gatorade has identified. That athlete is injured. Look at the massive amount of grams of muscular muscle tissue that individual is losing per week. And the solution isn't just duct taping them with more branched chain amino acids during the rehabilitation phase. It's really identifying what are they consuming? How are they nourishing themselves? Um, is there any inability to utilize a specific key nutrient? I think these things are are supremely important. And I'd like to uh, echo your statement. When they do retire, you'll notice these people, they, they, they age at a much more dramatic rate. We knew that in diabetes, diabetics age at a more rapid rate internally. I, I used to call it rusting from within. You can't escape an advanced glycation end product. I used to give a lecture called the rage against ages, if you don't mind that nomenclature, the A-G-E-S. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for the laugh there. <laughs> Tough crowd. <laughs> I, killed them, I killed them in organic chemistry boardrooms. But anyway, so, so, so yeah, so, so, uh, it, it's, it's that type of, 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 uh, I don't know, brainwashing, you know, everybody wants to, to be like their pro athlete and consume the products that uh, here's an inside information I'm going to get in trouble for, but they're not consuming the, the rock star athlete may be advertising said product and not naming names, wink, wink, but they're more than likely when I knew them, not consuming it. Uh, and that's another problem there. And it goes back to uh, Dr. Nestle's book, which I only saw a little soundbite by one of my professional organizations that I should read it, is there's so much misinformation that's out there. There's so much bias that's out there. And I get it. I've had people, Dr. Baker, say to me in an academic setting, it's why I stopped debating. It just stopped being fun. You know, I, I just wanted to talk about the science of nutrition. And I'd have people say, well, your bias because you had a disease. So that's why this hunter-gatherer lifestyle is better for you, but it may not be better for X, Y, and Z. So it's, it's, um, it's really hard, you know? It, it, all around, I feel that people have like this built-in view of what nutrition should be before they even start studying it. Um, if I may be so bold, my friend, I know you're a medical doctor. I think in New York, I'll just pick on New York, not the great state of Texas. I'm going to pick on New York. And I'm going to say that um, I don't feel that the nutritional education is ideal for a uh, medical resident going through medical school in my beautiful state of New York. Uh, and and I, I should state that I've spent time in internal medicine, endocrinology, uh, cardiovascular disease work with a cardiovascular practice, um, infectious disease, and 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 uh, my goodness, is soup to nuts. So I've been in all of those environments, and I think that the residents when I was in internal medicine spent the most time around my office because they were dying for the information that was not there. You know, uh, last point, Dr. Baker, because you talked about childhood, and I have to bring this up. Um, I got to study the 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 nutrition through the lifespan multiple times, but one of my favorite professors at Eastern Michigan University is the great Dr. Judith Brooks. She's multiple published on this topic. And I just never could get into my mind the brainwashing of a child, you're looking at pediatric literature, they're full on, full blown anemic, which is just life-threatening in infancy. And it's horrible, full blown anemic due to a dairy allergy. Yet I was told, oh, but that's okay because once you give them uh, either higher fortification or a soy-based formula fortified with iron and you supplement them with iron, they'll grow out of that. And that just never sat well with me because I'm never going to grow out of celiac disease. 
I believe allergies will change over time. I believe the child that's manifesting a dairy allergy as anemia may end up being asthmatic later on caused by a food allergy, food mediated reaction. And, and I have thousands of patient histories to back up that opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to me that um, just in the in the sort of the crazy nutritional realm that I found myself in the last few years, the number of things that I had, you know, and to your point, medical education with regards to nutrition is barely adequate. And, and I think it's probably not only inadequate, it's it's wrong, quite honestly. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's 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 uh, surprising to me that we see these things like asthma. And, and even seasonal allergies. And these things that seem to, things that I would have never associated with diet, now I'm finding out that diet has a role in those things. And I think that's just, it's, 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 it's both eye-opening and mind-boggling that we could have overlooked that for so many years. And, and you know, you've got this asthmatic kid and here you go, here's your albuterol inhaler, here's your, you know, your, 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 your corticosteroids you take occasionally. And we, we, we put these kids on this path for years and years and years when it may have been, some simple, you know, dietary fix that they could have changed that. And I think to me, that's, again, we've let down so many people that way. It's so true. I, I had, I'll never forget this case early on in internal medicine. I was in my late twenties and there was a, a young girl, a teenager, pardon, uh, about 15 years of age. And she was diagnosed with cyclical vomiting syndrome, which is just horrible. It's, it's, the symptoms are worse than the nomenclature. And uh, I, she was worked up by everyone. She was put on multiple medications, medications for suppressing nausea, medications to expedite the, the, the emptying time of her stomach. And uh, it, it got my turn to get up to bat. And, and mine was a thorough nutritional assessment. And I always love to know what an individual's immunological relationship is to the foods that they're consuming. I used traditional allergy testing, which obviously I think nothing's better than a cause and effect relationship, great journaling. But I think that um, clinical data can lead us to a path that can make us make a better decision. So in this young lady, believe it or not, it was the first time in my life I was confronted with a white potato um, um, reaction. She had a, a very interesting subclass of immunoglobulins known as IgG4 subclasses. And I know anyone can throw stones at that statement, but you can't throw stones at this story. So here's this young girl, and she has this horrible problem for years. Her mother is about to become the president of the local chapter for this disease. Punchline, 21 days after identification of this, and massive places you would find white potato in her diet and processed food diet, she was cured of that condition. She no longer had the disease. I was friends with them all the way up into my retirement of practice when I moved on to more of a clinical research endeavors uh, where my, my, my passion is, is celiac disease, and I'm doing a lot in that realm. Um, it, it, she, she was completely fine. And then one day she said, you know what, I just want to try this. I wonder if I'm tattooed with this allergy, like that was a joke I would say about my celiac disease. Now I know they have laser technology, okay, okay. But before they had that, you could remove the tattoo. I used to say to patients, I would say, oh, Dr. Pastoria, we wanna make you something. Let's see, here's homemade lasagna, cause you're so Italian. And I'm like, I'm predominantly British and Irish, but thank you for the thought. I could never eat that lasagna for the rest of my life. I appreciate that gift, but I'm tattooed with my disease. So she did indeed go out and buy some French fries and it was a vomit parade. So <laughs> hope nobody's listening after dinner. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, so it, it, that, that Dr. Baker always blew me away. The individualized relationship that people have with their nutrition. And uh, no one says it better than Raul Abanez and what he experienced. He's a brilliant guy. And um, 
uh, wow, just hearing what he had to say a couple of weeks ago about how nutrition affected his life and how at, at 45, 46, he could remember conversations I had with him at 37 because they were so life-changing. And it was all these little small things. I had a baseball player that would play the Colorado Rockies, and he was told, don't do more than X amount of inhalations of your inhaler for your asthma a week. And he would do all of those in that one game due to the altitude in his, in his symptoms. And when I found out he was reacting immunologically on a standard test that any doctor would do, tissue transglutaminase IgA, bingo, medical textbooks, there it is. It's the pathway towards should we biopsy this guy and see if he's got celiac, but we at least sure know he's immunologically reacting to gluten. When he identified that, um, by the end of the season, he no longer needed his inhaler. Um, he's since retired, and he's never had an asthma issue since identifying that immunological marker was associated with that. And I could give multiple reasons, and, and, and I'd like to give a controversial reason. It's not just the immunology that's creating a pro-inflammatory state that causes this bronchial constriction and all the pathways that you know better than anyone lead to the asthmatic symptoms. But how about the fact that we make the bulk of our serotonin in our gastrointestinal tract? And how about the fact that serotonin is actually produced in the lungs? And how about the fact that in chronic coughing syndromes, people who were treated with serotonin stimulating substances actually were able to ameliorate their coughing? And I've witnessed that on multiple cases. So healing one's gastrointestinal tract can actually upregulate the production of various neurotransmitters, which could then affect a completely different organ system than just your noggin and result in the amelioration of a subset of systems that symptoms that just nobody associated with that. So really that type of stuff fascinates me. Let me let me just put you on the spot here a little bit as oh, you please. deal with as you deal with uh, you know obviously high level athletes uh, from, as part of your uh, your practice. Um, there is a sort of a recent trend towards a sort of a plant-based approach. Are you seeing success with that? Are you dealing with athletes that you you sort of steer towards plant-based nutrition, or what is your what has been your experience in that realm, if any? Uh, I, I I really 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 was I say this respectfully, and yes, I believe one person's food food, another person's poison. We're all biochemically unique. Um, I've never never been a fan of of strict plant-based nutrition for a professional athlete. Um, I know there's a lot of vegan athletes out there. I respect them. I'm sure they do fantastic for their body. In my practice, I needed to fix these these people and fix them quickly. I was in the realm of being the contract guy. I needed to take someone and have them renew their their contract. And I will tell you, they're all very very high end professional teams. So I don't want to offend anyone. I knew how to get that done by getting these individuals uh, complete proteins, um, making sure that they were eating hypoallergenically for them. But here's where I did use a lot of plant-based substances. I had to, in many cases, make a plant-based protein due to the reactions the patients I was seeing were having to dairy-based products that were on the market. Whey-based proteins, casein-based proteins, Totally understand the merits there, read all the research on them. I will never know the benefits of them because I've been um, class five uh, RAST AMA approved allergic to dairy longer than I have been to gluten. 
Uh, funny side note, I react weird to foods. It actually gives me blinding migraines. I was diagnosed with a migraine disorder when I was five years old. I had them for 17 years. It was solely caused by dairy. No drug treated it. When injectable Imitrex came out, that wouldn't fix it. Nothing worked. I don't even know how I got through school. I took my SATs with a blinding migraine with my palm covering one eye. Thank God I understood mathematics. So what what was uh, so so for me? And again, I, 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 Dr. Baker, I don't want to offend anyone. I think that someone could probably be incredibly fit. So you asked me just for my personal views. That was not something I practiced unless someone came in and that was their almost religious view. If an athlete, which I've never witnessed, by the way, an athlete came into me that was pro, all they cared about was they needed to prolong their career. They needed career longevity. How can I nourish them uh, for, for their physicality? And then I would also like to add that I've always been a fan of the health and benefits of grass-fed and grass-finished red meat. I think that it is a superfood. Uh, ounce for ounce, microgram for microgram. It contains more nutrients uh, than than anything I've ever seen. Um, it's got a great bioavailability of its protein, of its amino acid profile, of its iron. I could go on ad nauseum just on uh, the benefits of that food. Unless someone was like, I just don't want to have that in my life, I would work around that. Uh, but my forte really was I had to become a specialist with regard going back to plant-based. I had to become a specialist to engineer at a compounding pharmacy as close as I could get mathematically to the amino acid profile and protein quality of whey and casein in my athletes that had severe uh, dairy allergies. To quote one of my athletes who I was trying to give a hydrolyzed beef-based protein uh, shake as opposed to whey, he said, thanks, Dr. Pastore. I'm really not in the mood to drink a cup of blood today. <laughs> I hope I asked, answered that question, Doc. No, I think it's a fair assessment. And I, I think, you know, obviously there are some athletes that are pursuing that uh, with, you know, at least relative short-term success. And, and, you know, again, I don't wish anyone harm. I find hopefully whatever works for them you know, works well. Um, speaking of blood, you know, it's kind of interesting just to, just to kind of a random observation, you know, back 50, 70 years ago, it, it was it was fashionable for some athletes to drink blood. Uh, I know boxers used to do that uh, back in the 1920s, I think. And so that's just because people ask me about that. And I'm like, I don't really have a great uh, answer about should you be drinking blood or not. Probably there's some concerns with it, but it's just kind of an interesting observation historically. Yeah, you know, and I I've, I've, I also read a lot of uh, weird stuff that Bruce Lee used to do and, you know, put just rare steak in a blender and um, connect wires to car batteries and shock certain muscle groups. And uh, I love these movies, by the way. So I just thought he's a phenomenal physical specimen and athlete. Uh, no, I, I, I have not heard that one. I have heard of some pros taking um, various immunological boosters that came from other humans. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, various stimulants of uh, immunological markers. Uh, I did see a couple of people in my career that were using EPO when they shouldn't have. They were never professional at the time. They were attempting to be professional. And I could immediately, immediately see that on a reticulocyte count. You know, looking at some immature red blood cells, you can catch someone on a fly if it's way, way, way into the millions and you're not treating someone for anemia. It's like, hey, what's upregulating this massive production of red blood cells? It looks like someone's doping here. So uh, that it was that type of stuff that I've seen. I've seen athletes would put their, their body on the line basically to do anything for their sport. We're all familiar with athletes who got busted in the press for consuming substances um, that were illegal. It, it definitely was a risk factor 
and a, and a frightening moment for me when I was in practice because I, I can tell you guys right now, I practiced on 45th between 5th and 6th at the famous bar building um, uh, on the, uh, the penthouse, which is right across from the Algonquin and the Harvard Club and the Penn Club. And when I would see like a really famous athlete, they would shut down my building. So I was working with those types of guys. Um, and it was... It was scary, you know. You you would you would be nervous because you didn't want one of your guys to get in trouble on their own, and you wanted to develop an excellent relationship with them. And knock on wood, I'm happy that my guys um, all stayed clean and we did everything the right way. And of course, I was testing them to make sure. Uh, but it really had to be for me to get the goals that they needed. I needed to follow a very specific set of rules based on my education and my my knowledge and coming out of that background internal medicine and really acutely looking, I would call it applied biochemistry is basically what I practiced. But like, for example, you, Zach, you're talking about using fat as a fuel source. I was looking at beta oxidation rates and I was measuring organic acids to see how well an athlete was getting long chain fatty acids into the part of mitochondria where they're utilized as a fuel source. You know, is there, is there any abnormality with suberate, ethylmalinate, beta hydroxybutyrate? Were they, were they absorbing and manufacturing carnitine appropriately to be that usher and that transport mechanism? Same thing with regard to tissue injury. I would be like, oh, I'm not just going to guess. You know, if you're taking collagen, that's lovely, but what is your hydroxyproline, hydroxylysine level on, on, a, on a blood test, on a lab analysis? And when you get pre and post of that, that starts to give you a rhythm of this makes sense. You know, even if, if a marker was approved by the state to be utilized, we would utilize it in clinical practice. You know, I would, I would take an athlete and I would run an asymmetric dimethylarginine to see if there was a different sub-independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease than just looking at a lipid profile because I know that marker is associated with some other problems and, and issues with nitric oxide and potential scarring within the intima of the arteries. Um, so it was really trying to get that, that type of, of specificity in, in my athletes. Um, yeah, but, but I've, never, I've never come across um, anyone, thankfully, consuming blood. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't, you know, I know there's been some stuff in like, uh, Perhaps the Silicon Valley crowd, where they're, or you know, they hear about you know, trans, you know, taking blood from young, healthy people in attempt for longevity. So, but you know, I, I don't. There's all kinds of craziness out there. And let me ask you because you had talked about with your athletes, you know, when you try to optimize these guys for the, you know, the rigorous demands that, that professional athletes put on their body. Um, you said there's some things that people are overlooking. They're not even bothering to check. What what sort of those things are there? And then, can you give a? a is there a simple I don't want to say a simple formula, but are there some general um, just lessons that the average person can utilize? Uh, you know, because I think the nice thing about working with outliers, you know, and athletes tend to be very good examples of this, is we see what the edges of physiology allow, and you get a lot of data there. It's like when I was in the military. You know, a lot of the advances in medicine came from this horrible, horrible battlefield trauma situations. You make all these advances, and I think the same thing we see in these athletes that push their bodies to the very edge of what physiology physiology allows we can learn from there but what 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 sort of markers are you looking at with the athletes and then what can how can we sort of uh, transfer some of that data into the sort of the normal guy that, that just wants to be healthy and 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 and, and age well yeah and that's tricky because I, there's two sides to that with with regard to um, it's tricky because I wish I, I want to give a sound bite that helps the general public um, and as you can imagine, having a rock star athlete that plays for one of the top teams come in your office and say, I'm running for a $250 million contract. Can you help me doc? You're doing a battery of work on them that you clearly would not normally do 
uh, on the general public and probably out of their their uh, typically their range um, from a price and understanding perspective because you're using cut, cutting edge laboratory science. But I'd like to start there. So uh, sound, just important footnote, I retired from that type of practice work in 2013. I'm sure there's um, more modern technology that's available now. But I would do a full organic acid analysis workup panel on the individual looking at about 46 um, organic acid markers that would be broken down to how well an individual was utilizing key nutrients. Like, for example, if I'm looking at the serology and looking for the folic acid trap, as well as the any polymorphisms for folate, just picking one nutrient, for example. I was also looking at figlu, form aminoglutamate, as an organic acid to see if they were actually utilizing folic acid. Just to have it in your blood means nothing. A serum folic acid, a serum B12, was to me a joke. You know, I want to know um, the, their exact biological utilization of those nutrients. So I'd be running a full blood, um, full cell level of the various key uh, fat-soluble vitamins, water-soluble vitamins, full about 45 different amino acids because there's analytes of amino acids which have tremendous value. I could even see carnosine levels, which is an amino acid uh, substance that's manufactured from other amino acids, which has antioxidant effects in athletes and can actually prolong the time of muscle fatigue and, and muscle soreness based on some clinical data. Uh, so I'm running all those, and I think I talked about you know joint and tissue repair. I would look at a separate subset of those. Um, all the muscle muscle building amino acids because you could you'd believe it or not you'd see these really large athletes but in the middle of a baseball season which I did a lot of work in MLB that would be called the grind and I always would have my teams in the postseason and these guys are losing weight and they're not keeping up with their branch chain amino acids and you would start to see them dipping to lower levels of couch potato of uh, a leucine. Uh, which is not a good thing. We're not, for them, upregulating their mammalian-targeted rapamycin, a 70SP kinase, which is so critical for building muscle tissue. So I would look at, uh, I guess I'll just summarize it and, and not go through um, explanation of each one. Full organic acid panel, looking at carbohydrate metabolism, fatty acid metabolism, hepatic phase one and phase two detoxification, utilization of various nutrients and water-soluble vitamins and amino acids. Full uh, vitamin panel, um, full uh, uh, fatty acid panel, and then I would look at um, free radicals within the individual. And this would all be well-accepted, um, laboratory-approved analyses so that I was, while I'm on the fringe, because people are really not doing these things, These, are, this is the type of data these guys needed. Now, how would I transverse that into the general public? What really always fascinated me, and it came up again in my most recent conversation with Raul Abanez, is how the athletes felt when I turned on the light bulb of all this dialogue. I'm throwing all this gobbledygook, dare I say it, at them. And instead they're saying, oh, cause and effect. When I stopped eating food X, this chronic pain I had, that went away by this date. Because athletes are hyper acute of their body, how they feel, what's going on. So here's the soundbite that, pardon me, but I think it's critical. And it's not done enough. Journaling your nutrition. So many of us, especially people that train a lot, journal about their training, opposing muscle groups, whatever they, they do. Zach might write out a big long list of everything he's done, he needs to do in preparation for this race, and he's got it down meticulously. But I would want the same exact thing to be done. Everything everyone consumed. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks. And then shockingly, how you felt 
And yes, there's many things that can change that. Yes, you could get into an argument with your spouse and that caused a fight or flight response or with your employer and you could turn nectar into poison. You could eat the best grass-fed steak on the planet and feel that something's upsetting your stomach if you have had a horrible, crappy day where you were being screamed at or you were doing the screaming. So let's just say you had a wonderful day and you love this brand of protein shake and mixed greens and you're making this smoothie and you consume it and then you sit down at your desk and you go, geez, you know, I'm feeling all this gurgling and was that a heartburn burp? And what's, do, do I have to go up a pant size? The solution to pollution is dilution. If you're eating something you're, you're, you're consuming that you immunologically react to, you react to, you will flood the area with interstitial fluid. Um, think about your joint aches and joint pains. Then look back after a month and say, what do I, did I eat the most of? Highlight that and say, maybe I should talk to my doctor and see if it's safe for me to stop that food for the next 30 days. What, what, what harm is there? Okay, I, I, the, all I did was have dairy everywhere. I'm working out, I have to have my whey protein shake. According to all media, I'm gonna have flabby muscles. I'm never gonna get pecs like Dr. Baker unless I'm drinking my whey shakes. I'm teasing you, doc. So, you know, and then they look back and go, oh my goodness. I was actually interviewed on a podcast uh, that's pretty well known. And after I said this, the, the, the host reached out to me and said, hey doc, I did exactly what you said and I couldn't believe how bad dairy was actually, I didn't even realize that I was on autopilot. I crushed my day, a military mindset, and I didn't realize how this was affecting me. I switched to a different protein, I, and I never, my gut feels so much better. And I said, that, that's, going, that's telling you something. That's gonna end up having a domino effect on the rest of your body. So I think the biggest soundbite that no one does is really keep just an insane diary about everything you consume, how you are feeling day to day, and then look back a month later and say, if it's not the best summary of how you feel, what hurts, look back and see what you consume the most of and try an elimination diet. Because even if you look at doctors who, medical doctors that AMA make a diagnosis of a bad true allergy, either through immunoglobulin IgE, RAS blood analysis with a skin scratch test, they're still going to tell the patient, this is accurate to this level now we're going to consume it and we're going to see how you feel and we're going to measure that reaction. And yes, in many foods, it's a problem. Like the aforementioned lone uh, star uh, tick that can cause up to 12 hour later beef reaction. That's why I like looking at a 30 day period of time. And if you're listening to this and you go, ha, I had Lyme disease and I did get hives after I had that rib ribeye. Talk to your doctor, that could be identified. Now that's, I'm giving you incredibly rare examples on purpose. I'm trying to be dramatic to show you that I really believe one person's food could truly be another person's poison. Uh, but that, that is something you should look at. And I wish I did that. I lived on gluten and I had all these arrhythmias and if I just stopped it, I probably would have not been on all this, those various medications. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously some, some solid advice. You know, it's probably easier in, to give out than, than in, for actual people to do that. A lot of people don't, don't, want to, don't, don't want to journal stuff, but I mean, it's so good advice. Two points. Um, one is, you know, and back to Lauren Cordane and some of the some of the the uh, you know the paleo type stuff. Where we look at human beings, you know, twenty thousand years ago versus after you know five thousand years ago when when we developed this agricultural type 
uh, that we see that those people, you know, at least the skeletal remains suggest they were bigger, stronger, had stronger muscle attachments were probably, if we were trying to select athletes, those guys were probably better set to do that. And they didn't have whey protein back then. They were eating, you know, they were eating basically meat. But the other thing that I think is important that you brought up is when you talked about some of these vitamin blood tests we talk and you're saying they're, they're, they're really not very effective. And a lot of us rely on that. And I think there's I mean, there's there's a lot of those thing tests that we get that, that don't really inform us as well as we think we do. And I think ultimately, you know, we have to we, we ultimately want to look at things at the tissue level. You know, when you said you had celiac disease, it was biopsy proven. Correct. And I think I think we have a we sometimes sort of overestimate what we can learn from uh, many blood tests. And, and, and when, when there's a lot of things out there that, that, that it doesn't show or it's not quite accurate. And I think that's something that many people sort of just don't understand that. And I think it's, you know, ultimately, you know, eventually we'll be, we'll have tests where we can scan the tissues themselves. You know, I know there's, we, you talked about advanced glycation end products. There's some autofluorescent readers on skin that I think might be something of interest to look at, you know, as a non-invasive way to get an idea of what's going on in the tissue. And we can see what's going on with glycation status. You know, there's obviously there's serum markers for that, but I think those are the things that hopefully will will sort of sort of look at you know, because where the rubber meets the road is at the tissue level. The blood is just kind of this what's kind of circulating at the time, and it can it can change oh, at, the, yeah. at the drop of a hat. And so I think yeah. those things are kind of important concepts as well. That's why I've always liked functioning better, or or like I've liked a red blood cell magnesium better than I've liked a blood magnesium. I've never thought a blood magnesium had value. It would only be abnormal if someone had severe vomiting syndrome or almost uh, going to die by uh, cholera diarrhea. Uh, I 100% agree with you. And it really, I gave a very quick, uh, expeditious explanation, but it, it has to be the utilization that you're measuring. And it's why I relied so much on organic acid analysis, which shows the substrate of utilization. You'd only find a marker in an individual's urine uh, on an organic acid panel if they were using a nutrient in, in a certain way. And if they were not using it in, in the right way, you'd find a different metabolite. But I still want to make clear, nothing is 100% accurate from these types of testing, testing standpoints. And it should be done by an individual that is well-credentialed, knowledgeable, and understands the limitation therein. What kind of, you know, obviously with these athletes, and I know you focus on nutrition, what kind of other sort of stuff are you doing? Are you doing stuff with uh, other modalities? Like, I know we have all these cryo chambers and sauna and, you know, compression, uh, you know, outfits and stuff like that. What what else is, is, is sort of sort of effective? And, and let's get a perspective on what percentage difference does it make? Is it, is it, you know, because when you're at that level, 1% and Zach will tell you that 1% is a, is, is a difference between, you know, you know, hundred thousand dollars and $5 million. And so what are you doing to get those, those final squeaking out those last few percentages in these, in these populations? That that's a great question. And that is seconds. I worked in the realm of seconds, uh, you know, or, or fragments of a second with regard to my marathon runners and, and competitive athletes and sprinters. So in, in those scenarios, I was so blessed to work with the team and I would refer to make sure individuals were having the proper recovery, the proper training. Um, I've had athletes that used hyperbaric oxygen um, to, to give them an edge because it was right for them. I've had athletes that, of course, did the various sauna therapies. Um, I've had athletes where we used vibration therapy to actually work as strengthening their um, their 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 tibia their tibia and and various musculature within the legs where that was their Achilles heel their weakness. So I I would use so many different modalities and I was really good at doing what I did 
And then I would bring in my my team and my colleagues to address other areas because I, I feel that a big deficit is that's lacking is proper recovery and working with someone that will help heal you from an osteopathic perspective. And that really started my relationship with um, uh, a group. I actually sat on the board, the medical advisory board for sports lab at the time. And we would help rehabilitate a lot of the, the professional athletes in different ways, all designed for them and all designed, all the programs were designed by a doctor, uh, my colleague, Dr. Keith Pine. Uh, and I, co- I collaborated with him all the way up to my retirement. And uh, as I said, Keith took over as medical chair for the Washington Nationals, and each guy would have a different program. Uh, for example, one of the biggest things they they implemented about two years ago was uh, just making sure their athletes were measured for sleep. So if they had a top uh, baseball player that didn't sleep well, they did not train them as hard that following day, knowing that they had a greater incidence of injury, a greater incidence of free radical production, and and thus more of a risk of putting their top million-dollar guys on the bench. Uh, so, yeah, I think every single aspect, particularly with an athlete, their whole life is their their body. The smallest thing can affect them in a in a way that that impacts seconds. And that's a big deal. I think what was so fun and interesting with me, uh, gentlemen, was baseball players, my outfielders, because especially when it's a long game. If you guys watched the last uh, Dodgers um, <clears throat> Red Sox World Series broke records with extra innings. Imagine the poor outfielder there just standing there doing nothing and five minutes pass and these are big guys and then they got to explode and run as quick as they can on a dime. They have to be so well trained, so well rehabbed to be able to do those types of physical movements without injuring their bodies. Yeah, that's that's one of the more impressive aspects to sport, I think, is, you know, people give give the baseball players grief for not moving a whole lot in in total but when you're going from stationary to full full blast that's that's when the injuries tend to flare up so uh uh, it makes sense that you were heavily involved in that world getting those guys ready for that sort of a scenario and the the last massive 100 was 162 game season um, plus playoff games so um you couple on yeah you couple on top of that the amount of travel and you know you get a you know, a multi-inning game, and then you might not get to bed until whenever, and that the travel the next day or something like that. Just I can't even imagine the amount of uh, time and energy you have to put into kind of hacking recovery, rehab, and sleep with those type of environments. Um, I want to go like full circle, but I don't want to hold you up for too much longer, Doctor Pastore, because you've been so generous with your time and information. Um, but with we started out talking talking about protein a bit and kind of how we've possibly drastically underestimated recommendations, uh, certainly for athletes. Um, what, do you have a formula or a recommendation? Where do you start if you're going to work with an athlete? How do you begin to kind of plan out what their protein requirements would be? Yeah, and you know, it, it really would be based on an individual basis was one of the main things that I would do. Um, so <clears throat> I, I wouldn't specifically say everyone must have this uh, set in pattern, uh, set in stone rules, but I've, I've never seen anyone do well less than like 1.6 kilograms per pound of body weight on a pro athlete, uh, scale. And I know there's, there's a lot of people that I've gone up to one gram per pound of, uh, protein per, it really depended on the athlete. It really depends on the individual athlete. And I think it's really urgent to, for, for the general public to, speak to their physicians and talk about protein. Of course, there's so many things that we have to be careful of. If there's any kidney disease, 
want to make it clear that high protein does not cause kidney disease. Um, amino acids are actually beneficial in cases of kidney disease, but it is something where you'd want someone to speak to their doctor to uh, to know what's uh, to to just get that vote of confidence. Uh, but for me, don't don't open an RD um, or or classic you know American Medical Association or Dietetic Association's require recommendations for protein and think that that is the benchmark you should hit. I really believe it should be definitely higher than that. And and I've I've just never been comfortable in in pros less than one point six. And a general population that may not even like high protein diets, or what I'm saying, less than 1.0 kilograms per gram of body weight. Uh, I think you're just getting yourself into trouble. I've always favored a higher one, a uh, higher recommendation of total protein per day. And I think that uh, sadly, we, I still believe in my heart, even though I know major groups disagree with me, I have professors that agree with me and my peers who agree with me. I still don't think we have the population dialed in right for protein intake. I still think we're under consuming. And if I may add, um, we're actually now stuck in a realm of people wanting to get involved into hypocaloric diets for longevity. And I'm not denying that there's science there that exists, but I fear, okay, so I'm living longer with weak bones, weak muscles, sarcopenia. You know, I'm, I'm, I worry about that dramatically. That's the big tide that's coming. If you guys are listening or or reading about it, or perhaps you've you've interviewed some some guests who follow that path. But there's I don't know if you guys are aware. There's people out there recommending not to max more than forty some odd grams of protein per day, and I think that's that's crazy. Uh, my pros would never consume less than thirty grams at a meal. Yeah, we are acutely aware of, of that sort of sentiment. I know uh, guys like Ron Rosedale and some others that have uh, been sort of proponents of this, and maybe they've, they've come back off of that that particular stance in recent years. But I know that was something that uh, surrounding uh, worries about you know stimulating mTOR, and, and you know we look at lower animals studies on worms and mice and some of these single cell organisms where that was felt to be. Uh, you know, driving aging and, and perhaps cancer. And so I think, again, if you look at human beings that actually are on a low protein diets, and we have great examples of that, we could look at the U.S. population, particularly our elderly population, we all we see is frailty and disability. And I think if anything, uh, particularly as we age, our protein requirements need to go up rather than down. And I think, uh, you know, that's that's just what bears out. You know, it's, it's always nice to have this theoretical uh, argument and, and based it on biochemistry. But, you know, my sort of overall thing is I think we don't know very much yet. We know a relatively little amount. There's so much more we don't know than we do know. And to make these sweeping generalizations on the latest and greatest biochemical finding often to me is is somewhat short-sighted. And I think we have to look at the results that actually happen in human beings over the long term. And clearly not eating enough protein is, is problematic. Clearly, and, and I was so against the tide, you know, even in graduate school when I was recommending endurance athletes never consume less than 1.5 to 1.7 grams of protein per kilogram. That was, I was looked at like I was mental. Um, when I was recommending weekend warriors that are uh, basically couch potatoes, they thought, oh, I only need the amount of protein to 10 pennies. You know, and, and again, I believe everything's indiv should be individualized, but being forced to give a generalization, I would say, okay, 1.2 to 1.5 is what I'm seeing in the lab. Uh, I wouldn't go lower than that. And, and you know, 2.0 is really ideal, what I would see for so for someone with, um, let's say you're 180 pounds, that's 163 grams of protein. And if you do the math, 
you're you're eating a lot of food, and you should. So I I, I agree with you, uh, Doc. I think that that's that's unfortunately um, something that's just still not clear. And now I do fear that tide of this. I still think it's too modern research. People are jumping upon it, uh, jumping all over it. I I building muscle in the absence of mammalian targeted rapamycin. Wow. Um, the amount of rodent studies that are done. And then, yes, there's some human studies, but, you know, I, I was just having a conversation with my wife about this and I'm like, just the Q of L, the quality of life. Look at the data on how uh, Harvard shown you could still build muscle mass in centurions. But would you have muscle mass to build if you are on one of these severe hypocaloric, hypoprotein intake diets? It, it frightens me. I think sarcopenia should be a bigger concern because it, we know for a fact it increases the rate of hip fracture. And we know for a fact hip fractures increase the risk of all-cause mortality. That's just – I'm just quoting really solid epidemiological data that's well-published. Yeah, so one of the – you know, obviously going forward, and this, this sort of ties into this sort of uh, – you know, going forward as a, as, a, as a species, you know, if we're going to go down the low protein route, then, then you know, we have this, you know, we're going to, we're, everybody's going to eat grain and, 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 and that sort of thing. But if we're going to say we all need to get, you know, two grams per kilogram, then it becomes more challenging. And I think we have to look at where we get that protein from. And I know there's been some studies on the environmental impact of getting nutritionally complete food versus just caloric you know, calories. And, you know, the cheapest, we had Professor Frank Midlaner on, you know, for, who's very well published and uh, respected in the world of uh, greenhouse gas emissions and, and animal agriculture. And he says the most effective way to get calories from an agricultural standpoint is just to feed everybody sugar. Now, obviously, I don't think anybody's going to, you know, want to be a proponent of that, but we have to figure out how do we get nutrient-dense food and go forward as a species. And I think that's a conundrum that uh, is, is vexing for a lot of people. I think there's, it's solvable. Uh, I think we're, uh, we're smart enough people to do that. And I think there's, there's people who want to do that. But at the same time, you know, there's a lot of people who want to feed us cheap calories, unfortunately. That's very true. And if, and if we look at our, um, the, not being an expert in that field, of course, but look, we look at just our path of waste is the first thing I look at the types of holes we could plug there and what we could do with our vegetables that we throw out. There's nonprofit organizations that are just recycling vegetables. There's nonprofit organizations that are recycling unattractive vegetables that would just be wasted and trying to get them to people who are in need. But talking about from a caloric perspective, I remember this one thing I told a basketball player who said, I was told by the team nutrition that if I just consumed enough calories from healthy sources, I was clearly getting enough protein for my body. Now, keep in mind, this individual was sitting across from me in a normal human chair, and it looked like I was living in a game of Mario Kart. His <laughs> knees were up near his ears. We're talking like 6'11 was his size. And I said, well, let me give you an example. If you were to eat a giant bowl of guacamole that was made from six avocados, I can tell you that's a large amount of calories, and I can also to and you great nutritional profile, but you're getting a horrendous level of protein, and you will indeed be protein deficient. So it's I do like that challenge, and perhaps I should just say, look, you want to eat like a pro athlete, <laughs> consume between 1.5 and 2.0 uh, grams of protein per kilogram, because it's look that that's high in my world, right? With all my professional affiliations, I am such an outlier. <laughs> It's out of control. It's like when my paper was rejected, they'd be like, "Oh God, Doctor Pastori, how could you speak? <laughs> how could you speak just blasphemy?" 
And I'd say, well, how many baseball players did you watch play phenomenally well and retire? And I should have worked for percentages of contracts or wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, that, that's, that's my counter to whatever argument they would joust my direction. Uh, I like those numbers, guys, because they do force you to then start doing math, dividing your body weight by 2.2 and then going, oh, Lord, I have, I have a lot that I have to get. You take your body weight, divide it by 2.2, multiply it by two, and then you say, what am I eating? In and I'm, let me go online and find a protein calculator. I bet you almost everyone listening, except for the most astute of your students, end up in a protein deficit. That's how bad I think the problem is, gentlemen. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for all that information, Dr. Pastore. It was awesome to have you on the show. Um, if, uh, if you want to let our audience know where they can find you on social media or website and things like that, feel free to plug any of those now and I can put them in the show notes as well. I appreciate that. Yeah, you could reach me at uh, modusnutrition.com, M-O-D-U-S nutrition.com and it takes you to everything I'm, I'm, I'm doing. If you go under learn, you'll see there's articles and a podcast and uh, various research uh, there. If you go under the parent company uh, that was started, uh, that I started when I retired, it's called Vitalair, uh, V-I-T-A-L-E-R-E.com, Vitalair.com. You'll see a lot of the different work that I'm doing and uh, a lot of work that I'm, I'm headed towards in celiac disease. Um, so that, that's where you could find, uh, what I'm about and it'll also have links to, uh, social media. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. It sounds like you're, you're not taking it easy in retirement, which, uh, I think comes across with your energy on this podcast. I know our listeners are going to love it and, uh, get a lot from it. So thanks again. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll just speak for myself. I enjoyed it. This was a fun conversation. I know there's a lot more information. Maybe we can do a part two, you know, somewhere down the road, you know, when we kind of, uh, you know, because there's, I think there's just so much information here, and it's fun to talk about. So thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Pastore, and uh, uh, it's it's been. Pl- I, I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't really aware of you much, but I, I'm I'm glad we did the podcast. It's been uh, very interesting, very enlightening, and it's good to see that there's more and more people that are kind of stepping out of the what I think is just the craziness that's become the norm, and and you know, not willing to accept. Uh, you know, the, the, what is, what is common as being normal. Wow. And I, I want you to know, I really appreciate this gentleman. It was an honor and a pleasure. And if I may, Dr. Baker, I just want to thank you for your service. Um, I think what you've done for our country, uh, can't possibly be thanked in this soundbite, but from the bottom of my heart, I just want to thank you, sir. Well, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to do that from a, from a military standpoint. It was, you know, something, not something that, anyone looks forward to been doing, but, you know, being able to, to make those impacts is, is important. Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen. This was an honor and a pleasure. Awesome. Take care guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the human performance outliers podcast with hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.